us how massive things can all be found back in one little tiny reality. That, that huge giant events, if, if you look at them throughout human history, actually all have their genesis in some small little thing. Or, or maybe for you, uh, you had something happen in your life that can, you can trace it back to one tiny little thing. Or I remember one time my wife and I were driving, or we were, we were traveling back from the only cruise we ever went on. Uh, it was while we were pregnant for our first child. This would have been 10 years ago. And we were coming back, and we'd been away for a week, and we flew into Portland, Maine. Uh, because that's where cheap flights are. And so we, we flew to Portland, Maine, and our, our little blue Ford Focus was there waiting for us in the cold. Uh, had a nice dent in the back. It was our first car. It's a, it's a special car. I'm glad it's gone. But nonetheless, and we, we flew in, and we got to the car, and we went to turn the car on. It was nothing, dead as a doornail. And you know that feeling like you've been traveling, you've been on planes, you just want to get home, you're ready to get home. And it didn't work. And so for the entirety of the rest of the afternoon, we went around, it happened to be on a holiday, trying to find a place that we could take the car to get it looked at so we could drive it home. And I mean, it was just this kind of chaotic, stress-filled afternoon. And it just so happened, though, that we went back to the car and my dad and I popped the hood. And I just kind of noticed that this little hose was, I'm not a mechanic, trust me. I'm like the least mechanical person there is. But I just kind of noticed this hose that looked out of place. And so I just kind of popped it back down where it looked like it went. And, and I put it there and I shut the hood and I started the car and it fired right up. Like all this trouble because this little hose was out of place and I, we drove home and there's no other problems with it. But it's amazing the chaos, the stress, the anxiety that can all come from one little thing, one little reality under the hood. I want to talk to you today as we continue our series on the war on worry. I want to talk about the little thing under the hood of all of our lives that is actually the overriding cause of the problem of anxiety and worry. It's this thing's presence in your life that is actually giving birth or allowing worry and anxiety to feed and, and, and have a presence in your life. I want to talk to you today about the reality of shame. I want to talk about shame. For the last few weeks, we've been in this series called The Worry War, and we've, week by week, trying to figure out, you know, based on the Word of God and what the Bible says, how do we live this victorious life that the Scripture tells us we have to live? Like when Jesus says, don't worry about anything, we're choosing to believe that he meant that, and that wasn't just hyperbole. And so we're looking at it, trying to figure out how do we live this life victorious over worry. And we talked about how Jesus, the gospel, actually gives us the armor to be able to do that. And then week two, Pastor Seth so beautifully and brilliantly talked about how we actually fight back against fear and anxiety and how we do that through prayer and supplication. Uh, and then last week, we looked at what do you do when stress and anxiety has actually done some damage on you and squeezed the joy out of you. And we looked at ways to kind of get our joy back. Uh, but this week, we're really getting to the heart of where anxiety and worry finds its existence. We're getting to the heart of the matter. Behind it all, behind all of your anxiety and your worry, you can root it back to this one powerful emotion that actually gives birth. It makes the space for anxiety and worry to operate. That is shame. What is shame? Shame can be defined a bunch of ways. Uh, shame is a sickness, I like to say, a sickness in your soul that warps and infects the entirety of your life. Shame is a soul-crushing, identity-warping emotion that is the root cause of the vast majority, I might even argue all, of the anxiety in your life. Shame is the feeling we get from the realization that we have not been or that we aren't who we're supposed to be. It's the feeling we get when we realize our own shortcomings, our own inadequacies, our own limitations. It's the feeling we get when we fail to meet our own expectations or the expectations of someone else. Shame is the feeling we get as a result of our insecurities, our deficiencies and our shortcomings, that's shame. And it's buried deep within our soul and it is immensely 
powerful. You probably can remember if I, if I spent some time going around each campus and interviewing you, you probably could remember one of the first times you remember feeling the feeling of shame. I was trying to think, when was the first time? It's amazing how young you, you you've probably seen it as a parent, how young you can recognize shame on one of your children. No one taught them that. They just innately noticed that this is this feeling, this feeling that just kind of comes out of nowhere. I was trying to remember the first time I felt shame. And I think I was able to trace it back to grade three. At least that's my earliest memory. Uh, my mom always told me how smart I am. She was super biased, but uh, she is just a good mom. Always just, you're, you're just so smart, Brent. Like she just liked to just reinforce that. And uh, so, of course, I believed I was the smartest kid there was. And that was my identity. So I, I remember uh, grade three, I remember the day my French teacher was passing back the tests to all the students. And there I am, grade three Brent, sitting there thinking I'm going to get another 10 out of 10 on all my French words because I'm the smart kid, right? And so, and so he's passing it along. And doesn't Mr. Pepin, the cool French, edgy French teacher that played a rock and roll guitar, doesn't he come and he looks at me, puts the, puts the test down and said, I expected better out of you, Brent, and keeps going. And I, and it was, it, I'm not dogging on Mr. Pepin by any means. He was one of my favorite teachers. But that was the first time that my expectation for myself and someone else's expectation for myself was not met by my results. And I remember just feeling that sinking feeling of shame. I remember talking to my parents about it. I remember my parents saying, all right, buddy, you, you're smarter than that. You don't need to fail any more tests. I remember feeling shame. And it's amazing how that can hang with you. And that's not even something really to be that ashamed of, but it's incredible how powerful and how potent the feeling of shame is. Now, what is shame and how is that different than guilt? Guilt and shame are not the same thing. Although they're connected, although they're kind of in the same arena and and one can kind of go with the other, they're not the same thing. Guilt is the feeling that I did something wrong. Guilt's the feeling that we get when we've done something wrong and we know it. And guilt can be productive. Guilt can be helpful. Guilt's that feeling that what I did is wrong. It's connected to your actions. Now, shame differs from that. Shame is the feeling that not that I did something wrong, but I am something wrong. It's not what I did. It's what I am. You see, shame cannot separate actions from identity. And in fact, the actions only serve to reinforce the identity. And so shame comes and is connected to our identity and it is reinforced or satiated by our actions. Our actions can either produce or reduce shame. And we all live with that revelation and realization. Shame cannot detach itself from actions and it starts to eat away at your identity. That is why it's so powerful. You can't isolate it. It's part of you. I remember just even seeing it in my own children. Um, about a month ago, my son it was really innocent stuff. It wasn't that big a deal. I, and he, he, he confessed, you know, getting into some trouble with some boys at school and and it wasn't a big deal. I was proud of him for even coming to me. He's just so tenderhearted. I, I love that about my, my son, Aiden. And he comes to me, he's all crying. He's like, oh, he did this. You know, and I'm like, it's okay, buddy. It's all right. Don't do it again. It's all right. And about 20 minutes later, I thought I'd had it all tied up nice and neat as the dad, right? It's good. He's good. I hear him crying again in his room. And I go in and I say, buddy, what's wrong, man? We talked about this. You're good. It's okay. I forgave you. It's, not a, it's, no, it's no problem. He goes, I know, but I just feel so dirty. That's shame. Shame starts to speak about who you are. And it can't separate who you are from what you did or didn't do. Shame is so powerful. It tells you you're broken. You're damaged. You're defective. You're flawed, you're dirty, you're ugly, you're impure, you're disgusting, you're unlovable, you're weak, you're inadequate, you're pitiful, you're pathetic, you're insignificant, you're worthless, you're unwanted, you're a failure, you're a bad person. That's the voice of shame. Shame is that feeling that comes from that fundamental self-awareness 
that tells you, I'm broken. I'm not right. I need fixing. And it has the power to infect the entirety of the way you see yourself and thus see the world. It's the filter that we see our deepest self through. It's the label that our heart wears. We actually live from this idea about ourselves in these, the deep recesses of our hearts. And usually we are blissfully unaware that it's even there because what we've done is built layer upon layer upon layer of ways in which we deal with our shame. Our actions can reduce or produce it. Shame makes us work for it. Shame's a slave driver. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The result of shame, like what shame produces in your life when it has access, and this is why it's connected to fear and worry and anxiety, what the result of shame is, if you're writing notes, take this down, number one, the result of shame is fear. The result of shame is fear. Shame has the power not, not, to, not fear in the, in the sense of terror, although it can lead to that, but fear in the sense of, of power, of reverence, of something that you listen to, you give wake to, you, you give room to, that it's this great motivator. Fear in the sense of shame is, is deep beneath the layers and idiosyncrasies of yourself and your identity. Shame is the platform that drives a lot of our lives. This, this revelation of I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'm broken, I'm ugly, I, I need to prove myself. There is a voice of shame likely deep beneath all of your goals, all of the things that you wear, all of the things that you try to accomplish in your life, all of your relationships. There is probably some disconnected or some connected source of shame deep within of you that is actually funding your whole life. Shame is the subtle yet powerful force that drives our lives. Inadequacy, weakness, the realization of these things, that's where shame comes from. And shame, subsequently, we, we try to deal with it. None of us like the feeling of shame, correct? Can we all just agree? Are we all in the same place today? East, west? Anybody love feeling shame? No, we don't. We hate it. We, it, it. It doesn't rest well with us. It's this negative emotion. And so shame, we try to deal with it. And we all try to deal with it. And shame will impact your actions. There's two primary ways we try to deal with shame. We basically, we're trying to avoid it. Some of us, we get aggressive. We get proactive. We, we project ourselves. We assert ourselves. Self-inflation. Uh, accomplishments. Uh, I'm the aggressor, and some of us, we aren't aggressive. We don't want to put ourselves out there. We actually withdraw. We, we're passive. We're more reactive. We're, we're, we're self-rejecting. We're, we're avoiding. We're timid. This will actually f roll itself out into basically a few things. Here's how you can know if you are under the weight of shame. Some of the things that you'll end up doing, it, shame will drive you to perfectionism. Uh, basically, I will try to silence my shame by living an error-free life. I'm, I'm not what my shame says I am because I was able to do this perfectly. That's a lot. If you see, if you're a perfectionist, I guarantee you it's shame driving that. Uh, some of us are not led to perfectionism. Some of us are critics. You're a critic. You're critical of yourself, so to deal with your criticizing of yourself, you start to criticize others because if you criticize yourself, that just reinforces your shame. So to get off your own back, you criticize other people. And generally, and it's amazing that we don't notice this. We only notice it when someone else does it. But generally, the people you're most critical of, you're actually seeing in the mirror something inside of yourself that you don't like in them. And so you're being critical. Uh, Self-focus. Shame causes us to be self-focused. We'll, we'll be self-defeating. Some people deal with their shame by, by not promising too much of themselves and, and always downplaying themselves. It's called false humility. That's shame-driven. And some people are self-inflated. They put themselves out there. That's, that's pride. It's shame-driven. This affects how we live our lives. Shame is everywhere within us. It affects everything. And, and here's the deal. It affects how we relate, not just to ourselves, but to other people and to God, to the people closest to us. It, probably the best place to, to observe the dynamic of shame is right within a marriage. Any married people? 
The, the dynamic of shame is on full display there because the, the people that provoke your shame the most and the people that can speak to the deepest parts of you are the people that are closest to you. No one touches my buttons like, like, like you know what I'm saying, then my wife, uh, get your head out of the gutter. Nobody, <laughs> nobody has the power to elicit a response out of me like my wife because she's close, because there's intimacy. And you see this happen. I read this article this week in Psychology Today uh, by this guy named Dr. Stephen Stosny, and he, and he was talking about the dynamic in marriage, and he said this, and I thought it says it so, so brilliantly. He said that in a marriage, the fear or anxiety of one triggers shame-avoidant behavior in the other, withdrawal or aggression. In the other, so, and vice versa. The classic example occurs in the car, a woman passenger, startled by something. I, oh, man, I know that one. She's startled by something she sees on the road, and she presses the, the invisible brake and holds the... Yeah? No? Startled by something she sees on the road, and her husband gets angry. Not me. Uh, perceiving her involuntary startle as an assault on his charioteering. So he'll sulk. Or he'll say something sarcastic or turn into Ben-Hur, ready to drive those other chariots off the road, making her even more afraid and angry. And they'll each feel that the other is overreacting, inconsiderate, and immature. And when she becomes anxious or fearful, he feels like a failure. His defensiveness makes her more anxious, and her fear makes him more ashamed. And if she says, I feel isolated, uh, I'm not getting my needs met, uh, you, you take me for granted, you just want me for sex, etc., he hears, regardless of how she puts it, that the way you love me isn't good enough, you're failing as a husband, you're a bad boy. And he gets defensive and angry and either tries to control her or shuts down emotionally. That's how shame will drive a relational dynamic. And it drives absolutely everything in our lives. It's this emotion that, that produces fear and reactivity that causes us to try to control or shut down. It's, it's aggression or withdrawal. And the reason shame is so powerful is because it's so connected to who you are. And there's no getting away from it. It's not just what you did. It's who I am. And the Bible has a reason for that. If you're writing notes, write this down, number two. The root of shame, the root of shame is sin. Shame is a part of us. And shame has access to a deep part of our soul. And the Bible gives explanation for that. It it explains shame as this foreign substance, but it provides explanation. It's right in the beginning. Uh, For those of you who were with us in the winter, we did a series in the book of Genesis. And we've been looking at some of this. But in Genesis, it talks about our origins. It's not a scientific book, but it's a book of origins to help us get a framework and a philosophy by which everything, we're able to filter everything. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, it talks about how God made us and, and and the why and the way he made us. And it says in Genesis 2, verse 25, Adam and his wife Eve. So God made Adam and his wife. And it says this, and this is so important that this is in there. Adam and his wife, after God made them, were both naked and they felt no shame. No shame. Now, this isn't in there as some cute detail so that we could draw kids' books with little leaves over them. That's not why that's in there. This is absolutely critical into understanding who we were designed to be in the first place. The reason it's talking about nakedness is that speaking, not to them as far as their sexuality goes, although we could talk about that, and someday I want to talk about about genders and how Genesis even talks about that, but it's really speaking more, not about their sexuality, but about their innocence. Their nakedness is a picture of their innocence. It's that they're, 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 they're right they're pure. They're right with God and one another. They're functioning properly as designed. They're, they're innocent. They're not flawed. They're without defect. You could call it, the Bible will call it holy. That's what nakedness means here. And so it says when they were, they were naked, that means that they were, there, was, there was no transgressions, no marks, no wounds, no warts, no, nothing wrong with them. And then it says when, they're, when they're, they felt no shame, the reason they felt no shame, that's actually speaking of the fact that they were honored, that they carried the glory of God. The Bible says that we've actually been created in the image of God. To bear his image means to bear his glory. 
And so they, were, they bore his glory. This is where we get this, this longing in us. You all have these same longings. All of us long for intimacy. All of us long for glory. Some of us just see it differently. Some of us want glory in, in you know, business success. Some of us want glory in influence. Some of us want glory in Facebook likes or Instagram posts. We all desire that feeling of praise. That's what it's talking about here. We all want intimacy. We all want glory. We all want purpose. And that's what this is speaking to. They were naked and felt no shame. But then it says this in chapter 3. It talks about the entrance of sin. And look what happens. Because of sin, sin is the great disconnection from God. And sin is more, more complicated than just what you do. Sin is actually, get this, it's part of who you are. Watch. Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. The reason that's a sin is because God explicitly said, do not do that. That's why that's sin. And so when she did that, she was breaking God's word. And when you break God's word, you break or sever the way, the, the, the way that God delivers his power of life into your life. And so they broke it. So it says she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then look what happens. Here's, here you see it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized what? They were naked. So here's what they did. They felt shame, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and watch what they did. They hid they hid from God among the trees in the garden. So sin becomes this great loss of innocence. They are guilty, aren't they? Like they did it, guilty. You did the thing that God said not to do. But when that happened, shame caught on there as well. And now it's who they are. And you start to see immediately, not just are they feeling that they did something wrong. You see instantaneously because of sin, what are they thinking? I am something wrong. And, and I'm not right with you, Eve. Before we did this, we, we were fine. We were fully accepted. I had nothing to prove. You had nothing to prove. We loved each other, and that's the way it was. And now, with this entrance of sin, now, now I've got to kind of save face, and I've got to kind of protect myself. I've got to make coverings. They covered from one another, and they hid from God. And that's what sin does, and that's what shame causes us to do. We cover and we hide says, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, and they hid. And shame now became the base by which the rest of their existence was living, was, was formed. Shame becomes this base. They realized they were naked. They were exposed they realized that they were frail. They realized that they were weak. They realized that they were lacking. They realized that they weren't strong enough. They realized that they weren't good enough. And there comes fear and there comes worry and there comes anxiety. It's all rooted back to this reality of sin, shame, anxiety. Shame. You probably don't think about it often, but much of your life, if you peel back the layers there is very likely a root or a foundation, a footing that's based in some shame that you have realized something about yourself, some, something about yourself that you're, you're not enough, you're broken, you're bad, and out of that realization, that produces that feeling. And so that feeling is not pleasant. It's a negative feeling. And so what we do is we start to do exactly what Adam and Eve do. You start because you realize I'm inadequate. I'm wrong. I'm, in, I'm insignificant. I'm unimportant. I'm not special. I'm not beautiful. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not normal. I'm not, I'm not pure. I'm dirty. When you get these realizations, it, you don't like that. And so it causes you to do exactly what Adam and Eve did. Hide. And make for yourself coverings. You make for yourself coverings. That's what we do. We, we all do it, every one of us. The preacher does it, every one of us. We make for ourselves. What do you think clothing is? Clothing is more than just fun. What do you think fashion is? I think there's a place for healthy self-expression. I really do. But you've got to believe you're attaching a lot of yourself to what you choose to wear. All of us, myself included. Every one of us, when we, got out, when we left the house today, we thought about what am I going to wear? Except for like four of you, I can tell. But the rest of you, <laughs> right? There's a reason though. Why? It's a covering. It's a covering. 
Because if I didn't wear this, if I didn't dress like this, if I didn't have that job, or if I didn't succeed like this, or if I wasn't the mom that made all the perfect stuff, or if I wasn't this, or I wasn't that, then you'd think something differently of me. If you knew the real me, so I got to project this. It's what it is to make coverings. We clothe ourselves in our appearance, in our successes. Some of you, you don't care about clothes. You just care about how many zeros are in your bank. Some of you, it's not, it's not success. Maybe for you, it's stuff. How many, how many things you have. You collect stuff. Maybe for some of you, it's not stuff. Maybe for some of you, it's your resume. It's how smart you are, that you're an educator or that, that you've got you know, X amount of degrees and you, were t- you learned at this school or that school. Whatever it is, that's what you clothe yourself in. You clothe yourself in your intelligence or maybe you clothe yourself in your money or you clothe yourself in your family name or you clothe yourself in how much power you have or you clothe yourself in how many Facebook likes you can get. Whatever it is, we all do it. And you got to believe something. There is, the, the, the motivator behind that is based on fear, and that fear is based on shame. We make coverings, and we hide. We hide in ourselves. We shut down. You ever notice how hard intimacy is? You know, ever notice how hard it is when someone says something nice to you? They shake your hand and look you in the eye. What do you do? Don't you? Or you do this. Either one. You're hiding. It's so hard to just say thank you. Thank you for, for, for being so kind. That's hard, isn't it? Why? Because, because of shame. There's some shame in there. We hide from intimacy. When shame becomes our base, we start to live by it. And here's just a couple, here's, here's the hard truth about it. One, it never goes away. I mean, you can manage it. You can, you can try to forget about it. Some of you have never thought about it this way before, but I guarantee you, you are managing that eco- economy of shame right now. And it never goes away. There are no days off. And the minute that you let off is the minute that that starts to creep back up. It's a 24-7, seven days a week, 365-day-a-year management. And you know what the harder part of shame is? Not that it never goes away. The harder part is, when you're really honest, shame is telling the truth. Not the feeling and not what it's causing you to do, but it's actually speaking a a truth that there are things inside of you that are broken and need fixing. That there are parts of us that are out of order, that are, that are, that are, 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 there's something not quite right in us. That's what shame is actually, if it is serving us in anything, it is causing us to actually look at ourselves and say, you know what, there's something wrong with me. Here's where the Christian faith differs from everything else you'll hear in the world. The world would tell you, yeah, the voice of shame, don't listen to it. You just got to, you know what, you go out and be all you can be and dream all you can dream and you go and achieve it and whatever. The Christian faith says the opposite. No, 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 no. When you hear that voice, there is a brokenness inside of you that Jesus wants to heal. And that the way to life is not for you to succeed, it's not for you to be perfect, it's not for you to be critical of others, it's, it's not for you to climb the corporate ladder. The way, the way to actually reconnect in life is by bowing your knee and calling out in faith and saying, Jesus, I need you. And that when you do that, you actually reconnect yourself back to the life and the glory and the meaning and the intimacy and the forgiveness and the healing that you were missing in the first place. Here, here's number three. I, I, gotta, I gotta hurry up, but... There will come a day, no matter how strong you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how great your name is, there will come a day where once again you are faced with the reality of your own inadequacy and shame will run you again. But Jesus offers you victory over shame. If you're writing notes, write this down. The remedy for shame is Jesus. And the love of God is what fully destroys shame. The love of God destroys shame. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus came, 
God in flesh, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, God in flesh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's that mean? It's a real fancy and poetic way to say God became human and came here on a saving mission. The Bible says that Jesus came to defeat the devil in his works, to conquer sin and shame. That's why he came. He didn't come because he was lonely, didn't come because he was bored. He came here to deal with the brokenness and dysfunction that is inside of all of humanity and all of creation, he came here to fix it and to right it and to free us from slavery and bondage to sin, death, Satan, and shame. That's why Jesus came. The Old Testament, this whole, do you know this whole book is about Jesus? It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament, that's what it's speaking about, that, that there's coming someone, is coming to deal with the sinfulness and the brokenness and the shame, the humiliation of our lives. That's what Isaiah 54 is talking about, is speaking about a future event. Fear not, you will not be ashamed, you will not be confounded, you will not be disgraced, for you'll forget the shame of your youth, it's gonna be gone. And the reproach of your widowhood, your loneliness, You'll remember no more. When God does what he wants to do, you won't even remember it. Your shame will be gone. You'll be free. And so Jesus comes. This is what we believe Jesus came to do. He, became, he came to ultimately save us from our own inadequacy and brokenness and sinfulness. He lived the life we couldn't live. He came. He lived. He was fully human. He identifies with us in our weakness. We serve a, a sympathetic high priest, the Bible says. He fully triumphed over sin, meaning that he was fully tempted as a human and he never once slipped up. Not once. So that means that the brokenness that all of us, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me remind some of you that might think that you, you're passing the test. Nope. Every one of us. Your, your sweet little Grammy who just knits and watches the maple leaves. She never... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, except for Jesus. Never once, never once in his heart even did he sin against God. He was fully triumphed over sin. He was the fully perfect man and fully God, which made him the perfect substitute, the only one whole enough and strong enough to actually deal with sin. And so the Bible says he came, he lived, he died. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin the perfect, spotless one. God made him who knew no sin, what? To be sin, remember? Shame is part of us. Sin is part of us. And so Jesus came to become sin so that, keep that up there, this is a good verse, so that, <laughs> this is huge, so that in him, so just in the same way that in sin you are ashamed and you are disgraced, in him, what? We become the righteousness. What's righteousness? It's another word for holiness. It's that picture of, of naked and unashamed. We become the righteousness of God. We stand in God's glory and design and health and flourishing. That is what the gospel is. It's this beautiful, great exchange where God exchanges your sinfulness and my sinfulness, all the past, present, and future. He exchanges it for the grace and glory and beauty and brilliance and health of his son, Jesus. And when we come to Jesus... We come to the cross and we say, I am not enough, but you are. And I exchange my broken, busted past and my broken, busted insides and my broken, busted thinking. I'm exchanging it for you. And Jesus takes on your sinfulness and your brokenness and your inadequacies, those inadequacies, those ones that your, your shame is trying to convince you are there because they are. Jesus says, bring it to me. And he exchanges that for right standing with God. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 24, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's the blood of shame. This great exchange happens and Jesus dies on the cross. The cross isn't just an example of God's love for us, although it is a shining one, but Jesus was literally taking on the payment. He was paying the price for all of our sin taking it upon himself so that whoever comes to him, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us from all unrighteousness. What's unrighteousness? It's dysfunction. It's the brokenness that we're so afraid of inside of us. If we come to Jesus, who 
is the greatest person who could possibly give us that invitation. If we come to him, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is incredible. So get this, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus gives us complete freedom from shame. It fully removes our guilt. What's happening on the cross? The Bible says that he was bruised for our transgressions. On the cross, all of the wrongdoing that we've done, the guilty stuff, guilty, anybody raise their hand if they're guilty? And the rest of you are lying, so you're guilty too. (laughs) All of the guilt of our lives was placed on Jesus. What's that mean? Debt has been paid. You don't owe anything. That whole, I'm going to work it off. I'm going to pay it back. Jesus already did that. The cross is payment. It's atonement. But get this, it also fully removes our shame. It's righteousness returned. The gospel is the word of God spoken over your life and that when you hear it and you receive it in your heart and you hear the booming voice of your creator, it disarms shame. Shame cannot coexist when the word of God comes. It can't. Think about this. The highest authority in the universe on innocence has spoken in your favor in Jesus. The highest authority in the universe on righteousness has spoken in your favor in Jesus. The highest authority in the universe on justice has spoken in your favor in Jesus. The highest authority on love and acceptance in the whole universe has spoken in your favor in Jesus. It disarms shame. Shame can't live there when you receive it. So get this. His voice, the voice of the word of God, the voice of God, perfected in Jesus, represented in Jesus. His voice is greater than every other voice. And it satisfies the longings in our broken hearts and it destroys shame. For everything that shame says, Jesus just destroys it. And so the challenge of your life is, whose word am I gonna believe? Am I gonna believe the word of Shame over my life or the word of Jesus? Because when you start to believe the word of Jesus, it absolutely uproots shame. Shame cannot coexist. Shame will say, you're on your own. No one's looking out for you. John 1.12 says, I am a child of God. I'm not on my own. Shame would say, no one likes you. No one, no one likes the real you. If they knew the real you, you, you got to go impress people. You got you to achieve. John 15, 5 says, Jesus called me friend. He knew full well who I am. He says, that's my friend. I nothing to prove. Shame would say, you don't matter. You need to prove yourself. Romans 5, 1 tells me, I have been justified by God, fully proven. Shame would tell you, no one understands you. No one, no one gets the real you. And if they did, they'd reject you. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, I am united, united. I'm united with the Lord and I am one in spirit with him. Shame would say that you're not valuable. You're cheap. You're used goods. You're not precious to anyone. Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, I have been bought with a price. I'm not precious Jesus poured out his blood for me. Shame would tell you that you're dirty and you're filthy and you're spoiled and you're tarnished and you're desecrated. Ephesians 1 says, I am a saint. I'm holy, clothed in righteousness, born of God, seated in Christ in heavenly places. Whose word do you believe? I can't believe that and the voice of shame at the same time. I'm one or the other. Shame would say, you've done so much wrong, you could never make it right. Colossians 1.14 says, I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. It's already been made right. Shame would say, you're guilty of so much wrongdoing. You're a cheater. We all know. We all know we saw you last night, you Christian. You're a cheater. You're a liar. You're an adulterer. You're a hater. You're a bigot. You're a glutton. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for him who is in Christ Jesus. I can't be in Christ Jesus and in that word, one or the other. The voice of shame would say, you're not special. You're insignificant. 2 Corinthians 1 says, I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I'm set apart. Hold on, hold on. I am set apart. 
I am, I am more than special. I'm consecrated. The voice of shame would say, you're exposed. You're weak. You can't fend for yourself. The other shoe is going to fall. Something's going to get you. The voice of Jesus says, you're hidden with Christ in God. He sets me high upon the rock. He's a shield about me, the lifter of my head. The voice of shame says you're going to die and your life is going to come to an end and that's it. And Jesus says to be absent from the bodies, be present with me. Anybody who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Whose word do you believe in? Shame says that you're afraid and you're confused. You don't know what to do and you're weak. The word of God says, you have not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Spirit of shame would say there's not enough of you, and there's not enough for you. You're going to run out. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for your, my power is made perfect in weakness. Your cup overflows. Shame says you can't do it. You're not able. The Bible says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Shame says you're going down. You're going to lose. You're a loser. The Bible says, Romans 8, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. For every lie that shame tells and tries to hold you down and keep you chained, the voice of truth sets you free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. It's the gospel. It's what Paul was talking about, Galatians 2.19. He said, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. What's that mean? Shame's telling you the truth. You, you, there's, there's broken stuff in you. It needs to go to the cross. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have a new identity. I identify with Christ. There's a lot of talk about how do you identify these days? Here's the Christian religion. You don't identify as anything. You identify with Christ. I identify with Christ. It's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing. It's either you, you are receiving the grace of the word that God has spoken over and you're letting it speak into the heart of your life or you're setting aside the grace of God and you're going back out into the world and you're working on that coverings and that hiding and you're playing the game. Paul says, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not setting aside the grace of God for one more minute in my life. I don't care what shame says. This is who I am now. I, I'm alive in Christ. I want you to hear this today, church, all of our campuses. God desires for his love and his grace to form the basis of your life. He wants his grace and what he has spoken over your life to root itself, not just speak over you, but to actually get inside of you and uproot all of the lies of shame and inadequacy. That's what God wants to do. His grace disconnects shame. And it dives right under the place where we think it's going to happen. I, I, think about, I was thinking about my life this week. I've been following Jesus since I was seven years old. And God, the Bible says that we move from glory to glory, strength to strength. And I've seen that in my own life, just different seasons and God doing different things in my life. And I was thinking back of all of the biggest moments in my life where just profound experience with God. You know that God's meant to be, God wants you to experience him. This isn't about just thinking. That God wants to, you want, he wants you to feel him in the, in the deepest parts of you. And the times in my life where I have experienced God the most profoundly, every time that happened, I came to him and he uprooted some kind of shame-based thinking that I was operating under every single time. Every time I thought I was going to engage with God on this level, some level of my shame, he, he in that moment dove beneath it and spoke to something deeper that I didn't even know was there and it uprooted all that stuff that was going on. I was thinking about it in 1996. I was, I was like 12, 13 years old at teen camp, first time I ever really encountered what I think like the Holy Spirit, first time I really encountered the Holy Spirit and felt conviction. And I remember the, the, the I don't even remember what the guy was saying, it doesn't matter. That, that's cool, if you don't remember what I'm saying, if God's speaking something to you, that's all I wanna see happen. But I don't remember what the guy was saying, I just remember just feeling like conviction and I had this kind of idea, you're a bad boy 
and you've done some bad things and you need to go up and you need to ask for forgiveness. And I was kind of lost in this sort of shame dynamic. And so present reality, you know, Anthony Moore, who's still a part of our church, my best bud, he's up there playing and Andrew Wakeston and they're, you know, that was my like teen years. And I remember them playing. I remember just going to the front of the altar and kneeling down. And even as a 12 year old, as a 13 year old, thinking that I was going to do this, like this exchange with God where I was going to, you know, okay, God, I'm a bad boy forgive my sins. In that moment, God just spoke something into my heart so profound that just said, you're my boy. And all of a sudden, the bad just, the labels you wear just float away. I remember in 2006, probably the most profound single experience I've ever had with God in my whole life. And I remember knowing that God wanted to do something in my life and knowing that I had to sit down and ask for prayer. And I had this whole thing worked in my head that I was gonna have to like, you know, just like air all my dirty laundry. And in order for God to really bless me, I was gonna have to like just... All the sin, all the stuff, which confession, confession is a good thing. But I thought God wanted to relate to me on that economy. And so I, I sat down in this chair and the Holy Spirit just enveloped me. When shame was saying, you're guilty, God was saying, you're mine. 2012, I remember... Right before, like, just massive change in our church, there was massive change going on in me. And I remember thinking, this, just going through this season, I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to carve my own path and I got to, I got to work really hard and I'm going to be successful in my field. And I remember just having this experience with God again, where God just enveloped me and grace came in and said, son, I have called you and I have a plan for you and no, no striving and no Satan's going to stop that. 2017, last fall. August, I was starting to get really tired, starting to just grind my gears. I just felt like I was, for the first time, I think in my whole ministry, just feeling, uh, we're having confession here now, just feeling uh, like there wasn't enough of me um, and that I needed to just, I needed to win all the time. I want to succeed. I want to succeed. I want to succeed. I got to prove myself. I want to succeed. We're going to, we're gonna, and just this go, 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 go. And I had a buddy show up one morning and say, hey, I had a dream about you. And I was supposed to pray for you. And he came behind me and put his hands on my shoulders. And just... He said, Brent, God wants you to hear this today. Son, I enjoy you. Like, I like you. You don't know how bad my soul needed that. See, for every lie of shame, the Father wants to speak a word into your soul that uproots and set you free. All the striving in that moment, all the striving just lifted. I, I was free. I'm a son. I'm a child of God. I don't, need, I don't need to worry about it. It's gone. Every time God speaks, he uproots the power of shame. And I want you to hear today. I'm going to pray. I want you to hear the word of the Lord over you. At all of our campus, I want you to stand. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. And I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants to speak something in you. Just stand up at all of our locations. Just remain, just remain in that posture. And I want you to hear this. And I'm going to pray. The Father has spoken in your favor. The cross declares it in the Son. And today, the Spirit of God is speaking. Hear the word of the Lord. For the one who's feeling inadequate, hear the word of the Father. I made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have been purposed by my hand. 
For the one who's feeling broken beyond repair, hear the word of the Lord. I am the great healer, the great physician. There is no sin too great that my love and my grace cannot cover. There is no wound too deep that my hand cannot heal. For the one who's feeling unlovable, hear God. I have loved you from the time I formed you in your mother's womb and before. For the one who's feeling excluded, hear the word. I, your God, have accepted you and included you. For the one who feels ugly, hear the word. I say you are beautiful. For the one who feels lost and alone and forgotten and no one notices you and no one knows the real you, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the Father say, I see you. I'm with you. You're not alone. For the one who feels like they have to prove themselves, hear the word. You're my son. You're my daughter. You can't buy my love. I enjoy you. For the frantic fixer who feels like the weight of the world is on their shoulders and they got to fix everything, just receive the word today. I am your God. I am good. And I am in control. And the world does not rest on your ability. It rests on mine. Father, thank you today. Thank you for every deficiency and every inadequacy and every lack in our souls. Your word is so sufficient. Your grace is so sufficient to fill us. And Father, right now, we just receive in joy the grace that you want to give us. God, I pray for every person here right now who, who you've revealed that there's some shame driving them. Now, we just, we just, I just prophesy that shame is falling off shoulders. It's falling out of minds. It's falling out of hearts. And Holy Spirit, your word, your word is reaching our hearts today. Lord, I pray right now, even as we... So we close this service and we celebrate and we celebrate baptisms. Holy Spirit, would you just heal old wounds? God, for the one who's just, they're, they're, they're trying to be perfectionists, they're trying to keep things perfect, would you set them free from that? They have nothing to prove. Lord, for the one who's critical, Lord, would your approval so profoundly speak over them that no longer do they feel like we gotta tear other people down to feel better. Lord, for the one who's self-inflated, Lord, would the cross humble them. Lord, for the one who's self-defeated, would the cross lift them up? Thank you, Lord. There's not one area in our lives that your grace cannot rebuild. There's not one thing broken that your grace cannot heal. And so, Father, we receive it today. We just declare in this space right now, shame is ending and it is falling off in Jesus' name. Shame cannot live where Jesus lives. And so, Father, today we receive all that you have for us and we choose to believe I am who you say I am. We are who you say, you, who you say we are. We, we have what you say we have. We can do what you say we can do. And so, Father, we receive that today. In Jesus' name, would it ride in our hearts and our minds like never before. And all God's people said, amen. Anybody thankful for what God's doing in this room right now in all of our locations? Amen.